You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. If you've got a Bible, we're spending a few months going through the opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, looking at the birth of Jesus Christ, the most important, significant birth in the history of the world. If you've got your Bible, go to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 36. And as you're finding your way there, let me ask you a question. Think for a moment of the most famous, well-known, popular young women in our culture. This can be teens, early 20s, who comes to mind? You don't need to shout their name, but you see their face or you know their name. Let me ask you this question. Are they godly? Are they exemplary? Are they amazing? Have they, have they made a, a life-changing contribution to the world? In 2,000 years, we'll, we'll be putting them on Christmas cards and, and just singing their praises because of the difference they made? Likely, no. We, we live in a world that has absolutely lost its way, and here's how it works. We're in this celebrity culture where celebrities will model and then their followers will mirror. And so the way this works, to be famous, to be popular, to be well-known, you need to say or do something that is really extreme, really outside of the norm, something that is very avant-garde, maybe rebellious or even self-destructive. And then you will advertise that largely through social media. And then your followers, your fans, they will mirror what you model. So they'll start to drink what you drink and wear what you wear or what you don't wear and do what you do or don't do. And then all of a sudden, your unusual behavior becomes normative. So then you need to increase the sort of eccentricity and danger in your behavior and your lifestyle. And those of us who are watching this, we wonder, when does it end and and, and where does it go? Well, the the problem is that then the culture becomes incredibly self-destructive, particularly for young people, but in light of my message today for young women. I've got two teenage daughters, and and just thinking of this cycle of self-destruction where sort of famous celebrity young gals raise up, their life is often very painful, it's very tragic, it ends oftentimes in an early death. That's the world in which we we live, and, and it tends to be, you know, less clothes, more drama, right? As a dad, can you just help me start a movement of more clothes and less drama? That's what I'm going for, right? So the question is, where do young people in general, but young women in particular, where do you look for an example? If it's not in culture and celebrity culture, where do you look? Well, what we're going to study a little bit more today is actually the most famous and significant young woman in the history of the world. 2,000 years later, we still celebrate her. The Christmas cards you receive will have some image of her. The nativity scene in your house will have her. Her name is Mary. Her name is Mary. She's the most significant, important, influential young woman in the history of the world. And, And the question is, what's the key to her character? Well, there's really only three ways to live. I live for you. I live for you. So your approval, you're paying attention to me, you're desiring of me, your appreciation of me is what fuels me. 
Now, if we do that, we end up living for the applause and approval of others, and that becomes very self-destructive. So then the second option that some will posit is, I don't live for you, I live for me. I need to love myself, I need to be true to myself, I need to serve myself, I, I need to take care of myself. It's either I live for you, or I live for me, but that can be very foolish. No, I'm not going to listen to you. That could be very selfish. Now I don't care about you. Mary had a third way, and it was, I live for God. I live for God. You need to see her as she is. She's probably in her teens, likely not beyond her early 20s. She's in a poor family, in a rural town, in the middle of nowhere. She's betrothed and engaged to be married. And the angel Gabriel shows up and says, God has a plan for your life. He wants you to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, if she was living for the approval of others, she would have said no. Because her reputation would be forever damaged. Of course, the people in the small town didn't think, oh yes, she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's a godly woman. Instead, they all thought that she was a woman who was unfaithful during her engagement or betrothal to Joseph. Uh, I told you last week that uh, when Jesus was a little older, they said, at least we know who our father is. Remember what he said? Your father is the devil. And they dropped the mic and walked away. And he won. He won that argument. But her reputation was not good. So if she was living for your approval, she was not going to accept God's calling. Now, what if she was just living for herself? She would say, God, I'm not going to be Jesus' mother. This could cost me my engagement, my marriage. This will cost me my reputation. Uh, It's very complicated and difficult to be a mother, let alone raising a perfect child. Right? How many of you ladies, if you raised a perfect child, you're like, I don't know who to spank. I guess I spanked myself, right? Like, like the, it's never the child's fault. It's very complicated. She could have said, no, that's not what I want. No, that's not what I want. Instead, what she said was, I am the servant of the Lord. She demonstrates tremendous humility, great integrity. And she understands that her life is to be lived, not for the approval of others or for the convenience of self, but for the glory of God. She's young, but she's mature, and she has tremendous character. And she lives, as the theologians will call it, quorum Deo, in the face of God. She's able to sort of close her ear to the criticism of others and open her ear to the voice of God and live her life for God's approval, trusting him to work out the complicated details of her future. She is brave, she is courageous, she is strong, she is mature, and she is probably a teenage gal, which tells you that character sometimes defies age. That being said, we learn a little bit more about her story today, and the first thing that we learn is that God's family is generational. So in Luke 1, 39 through 40, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste. So she's in this urgent state into the hill country. We don't know exactly what town, but we know what region to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, we learned a few weeks ago, they are extended relatives of hers. One thing that's really curious to me as I was reading the text this week, where are her parents? Right? I, I, I've read this so many times. And this week I was like, If my daughter was pregnant, I would be involved, right? I mean, uh, where's her dad? Where's her mom? They're never mentioned. We don't know anything about them. We don't know if 
they were dead. We don't know if they disowned her once they found she was pregnant. I don't know. Nonetheless, she's looking for some older counsel input. So she makes the journey to her extended relative, Zechariah, who was a priest. He was the equivalent of a a pastor in a rural country, and Elizabeth. And and what's interesting is Mary is young and, and Elizabeth is old. And Mary is not yet married and Elizabeth is married. And Mary is a virgin and Elizabeth's been married for a long time. What they do hold in common is they're both poor. They're both uh, walking faithfully with the Lord. They're both in a more rural area, which means in that culture, they would have been out on the margins insofar as influence goes. Men were at the center, not women. Rich people were at the center, not poor people. People in the big city are in the center, not the people out in the rural villages. But because of their character, God puts them in the center of his story and actually the center of history. This goes to show that God does forgive sin, but he honors character. Sometimes Christians get confused by this. Sometimes Christians will think, well, you could kind of say and do whatever you want because God will forgive you. Here's the deal. God does forgive you, but he honors character. And character does not grow in an instance. It grows over time. So when God asks, looking at who he will bring John the baptizer through, the prophet to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, he chooses Elizabeth who's elderly and barren, and her husband, Zechariah, because it says that they walk blamelessly in the sight of God. They have character. When it comes to who will bring Jesus forth into the world and really be the mother of the Messiah, God chooses Mary because she has integrity and character. God forgives sin, but he honors character. Character is built over time. It's not like these people start to behave in a godly way because all of a sudden it became very serious. They had prepared themselves through simple acts of growing obedience over the course of a long duration of time. Now that being said, one of the things that I find curious is we may miss it in the topography, but this is about a hundred mile walk. How many of you pregnant ladies wouldn't take a hundred mile walk? Raise your hand. Right, you really want to see someone when you walk a hundred miles. If I told you right now, good news, we're all going to Prescott. Get your shoes on. You're like, no, no. It's about that far. It's about from here to Prescott. And Mary, pregnant young gal, is going to with haste make the journey while pregnant. Why is she doing this? Here's why: because Elizabeth is someone that she wants to be with. You can tell a lot about someone's character by the sacrifice you're willing to make to be with them. She can be anywhere. She wants to get to Elizabeth's house because the angel Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, this was earlier in the story, he showed up and told Elizabeth, your prayer has been heard, though you're barren and beyond childbearing years, something amazing is going to happen. You're going to give birth to a son. His name's going to be John and he's going to be a prophet. And then the angel Gabriel goes over and tells Mary, God is going to do the amazing with you in the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin will be with child. Guess what virgin that is? That's you. Pulls out the kazoo, the party favor. Woo, Gabriel celebrates with Mary. And Mary realizes, oh, Elizabeth is gonna have a baby too. So she wants to go see Elizabeth so they can celebrate and share in their joy of joint motherhood, though they're separated generationally. They're connected spiritually, and she makes the 100-mile journey. And when these women get together, some amazing things happen. But let me say this. The calling on both of their lives is very difficult. How many of you women would agree just being a mother is difficult? 
Now imagine you're Elizabeth and the angel Gabriel shows up and says, you're going to raise a prophet. Your first thought is, yay. And then if you think about it, you're like, ah, because what happens to the prophets? Did they live happily ever after? No, they are ostracized. They live in exile. They preach repentance. People don't want to hear it. And the only way to stop them is to kill them. So that calling that is on Elizabeth and Zechariah to raise John the baptizer, it is a difficult calling to think, we're only going to have one kid. We've waited our whole life. Now we're going to have the kid. We're going to raise the kid and the kid is going to go die. It's like raising a kid to go die on the mission field. And they accept that calling. For Mary, her calling is also very difficult. People are going to reject you. They're going to say horrible things about you. At this point, it is still unknown as to whether or not Joseph will be with her. She's facing the possibility of being an unwed, rural, poor, single, teenage mom in a Hebrew town raising God. Right? That's, that's a lot of complex variables, amen? Yet they both have character and they come together in relationship. And what I want you to see is this. I want you to see that the culture may look at them as despised, but God looks at them as daughters. And all of you need to understand, starting with you women, that your identity is in relationship to God, not in relationship to others. Your identity comes from your relationship with God and it influences your relationship with others. Mary does not see herself as despised. Elizabeth does not see herself as despised. They see themselves as daughters that God is a father who loves them and has a good plan for them. And they've been awaiting the unveiling of his plan. Furthermore, what we see is the benefit of generational ministry. What we're starting to see here is the entrance of the Lord Jesus into history. That means it is the inauguration, the dawning, the coming of the kingdom of God. It's here in bud form. It's not yet fully you know, blossomed as it were. But what we start to see is kingdom activity and kingdom lifestyle and kingdom values around the birth of Jesus. And one of the things that we observe is intergenerational relationship and friendship. That Mary is a young woman and Elizabeth is an older woman, but they love each other and they do life together. Let me submit to you that one of the problems that we have in our culture, and there are many, is this generational fracturing. I don't want to be critical of other churches. I love other churches and pastors. I've met with over 100 pastors in the valley. I have dear friends here. This is just, I want you to hear my heart as your pastor on how I see this. I see that in a day of broken homes and families and people relocating and being separated from family, that more than ever, we need intergenerational relationship. That if you're a student in school, high school, you probably need to know some college kids. Hey, what's that like? And the college kids need to know with the young working professionals, what's a career path like? And those who are single need to know those who are newly married. Hey, how did you cross that bridge? And those who are newly married need to know some parents with young kids. Okay, what's that transition like? And those with young kids need to know parents of older kids. What's it like getting into the teen years? And and those who have teen year children need to know those who are empty nesters. How do you maintain your relationship when your kids are gone? And, and those who are empty nesters need to know those who are widows and now living alone because they've lost the one they love. And we all have someone that we could learn from. And sometimes it's that natural relationship from one generation to another that helps us all to grow into all that God intends for us to be. Yet we live in a day when it's like junior high kids over there, high school kids over there, college kids over there, single kids over there. And then we ask two questions. Why are they so immature? 
Well, because they don't know anyone more mature than them. And why is it that they fall through the cracks from one generation to the next? Why is it in these life stages that they just stop going to church and they stop walking with God? It's because they didn't have relationships in the entire family of God. So we want to be a church that encourages intergenerational, and I would add interracial relationships, because that's the kingdom. Lots of people different than us and in different life stages so that we can learn to become more like Jesus together. And we think it's important to have friends at your life stage, but it's important also to learn from those who are in another life stage from you. So when these women come together, Mary's like, I got to go see Elizabeth. She's older, right? She's got some wisdom for me. I can learn from her. And for those of you who are young, I want you to see the effort that she undertakes to find someone to spend some time with. She walks a hundred miles. That means that she takes the initiative and she is the one who is pursuing relationship. Now, let me say this as well. We are blessed. We are blessed at the Trinity Church with some extraordinary older saints who remind me of Zechariah and Elizabeth. I've had a great honor of doing ministry for some 20 years. Percentage-wise, I've never had this many older people. By older people, I mean, sadly, my age and older. I'm older now, too. That's why I have a vest and fatigue. (laughs) So... uh, but there is, there is a lot that the Bible has to say that is good about gray hair. Um, the Bible, I've read the whole thing. It doesn't have anything good to say about young men. I hate to break it to you, young men. It doesn't have anything to say good about you. It's going to be a while before I can say anything good about you. Um, and I know because I was a young man and I'm just like, oh, remember not the sins of my youth. And, uh, and at the end of the day, it is that we are all blessed and benefited by those who have lived through experience, garnered wisdom, walked with humility, and are willing to lovingly bring us along. So I need you to know, if you're older at this church, we love you. Like, and we need you. And we honor you. And, and, and we, we are grateful for you. Okay? So the, the heart of the young people in this church, it's been extraordinary. I talk with a lot of the, the youngins, and a lot of the youngins tell me, I really love it here because there's older people and I can talk to them and I can learn from them. It's like having a mom and a dad or a grandma and a grandpa. So you need to know that the heart of the young people in this church is, yay, there's wiser older people. And I want you older people to have the heart of Elizabeth and Zechariah. How can I love and help and serve? You see this here in this relationship with, with Mary and also with Elizabeth. Now, that being said, the, the next point is that God's family is life celebrating. And that the entrance to the kingdom of God here, it's all in the context of family. This is all a big extended family. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. And when Elizabeth, the older woman, heard the greeting of Mary, the younger woman, the baby leaped in her womb. What was in her womb? A baby. He's got a name. His name is John. He has a name because he's a person. And he leaps because he's a person who's alive. I want to lovingly, humbly, but clearly deal with something that is incredibly important, life. That God is the living God. That when the kingdom of God is fully unveiled at the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there will only be life. There will be no death. Now this word here, baby, It's a word that gets used by this author on multiple occasions. For those of you who perhaps remember, 
What's Luke's vocation? What's his profession? Medical doctor. So what we have is Dr. Luke teaching us about life beginning in the womb. Now, some of you would think this is political. It is pastoral with political implications. It is a God issue with governmental implications. But it is firstly and foremostly a pastoral issue and a God issue. And we don't want to live our lives culture up, telling God that he should be like us. We want to live our lives kingdom down, asking God how we can be like him. Okay? So what I want to do is I want to show you how this word is used. First, it's used for John the baptizer in the womb. Luke 141, when Elizabeth heard the greeting, we just read this of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Okay? Any pregnant ladies in the room today? Raise your hand, ladies. Okay? couple pregnant ladies, in your womb is a human being that God knows. God knows them. They're a baby. They bear the image and likeness of God. God knows us, the Bible says, from our mother's womb. From our mother's womb. God is the one who creates life. Therefore, God is the one who has the right to call when life begins. And it begins at conception, and it begins in the womb of the mother. John, uh, Luke one forty four. Elizabeth says, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Not only is this a human being, this is a human being who's very excited and happy, has the beginning of an emotional life. Not only leaped, but leaped for joy. The Holy Spirit sees and knows the life in the womb. God is the author of life, and God is the one who has the right to tell us when life begins. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Dr. Luke is saying, this is what's happening in the mother's womb. The same word is used of Jesus in Luke 2.12. It says, you will find a a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So all of you who put a nativity scene up at your home, that same word for the born baby Jesus is the same word for the unborn John the baptizer, his cousin. Same word. Because the life in the womb is seen by God as the same as the life in the manger. All we've done is we've taken the life from the womb and we've placed it in the manger, but it's all the same life. Luke 2.16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. His name is Jesus. Now imagine in our day, Mary, let's say, underwent a moment of emotional crisis and struggling. So she walks into a local clinic they say, what's your story? She says, well, I'm, I'm a teenager. I come from a poor family. Where are your parents? Well, they're not, they're not really involved. Where do you live? I live in a rural country area. So what kind of job skills do you have? I don't really have job skills. What kind of education do you have? I wasn't, didn't get a lot of education. Um, so tell us about the boy. Well, I don't know if he's going to marry me now because it's not his child. Now, she's pregnant by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, but Joseph has still got to make a decision whether or not he's going to marry her and raise this baby. What do you think the counsel would be for Mary? You're young, you're poor, you're rural, your family's not involved. We're not sure if the boy wants to marry you and raise the child. You don't have much of an education or a career path. Probably best to terminate this. God.
God's inner womb. There can be nothing more dignifying for unborn life than for God to start his work on the earth in the womb. That God identifies himself in the womb with the unborn, the preborn, the yet to be born. And Mary is choosing to not just bring life into the world, but to bring the author of life for the whole world. The same word is used by Dr. Luke a little later in Luke's gospel. Now they were bringing even, it's the same word, what? Infants that he might touch them. This is one of the most endearing pictures in the whole Bible. Even non-Christians like this one. They're like, I like that one where all the kids run up to Jesus. And Jesus loves them and blesses them and, you know, holds them like Santa and kisses them and prays for them. Children love Jesus, right? Children run to Jesus. This is why we know Jesus is fun because children run to him. They never run to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are all these religious people. And the Pharisees never have this problem. Oh, there's too many children that want to play with us. They never have that problem. Jesus has got this quote-unquote problem. All the kids want to come and hang out with him. Because children love Jesus and Jesus loves children. And you know what? That's still true. That's still true. So the religious people come around Jesus and they're like, all these kids are making noise and distracting. Jesus is like, hey, no, 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 they're not the problem. In fact, the kingdom of God was made for such as these. Luke also writes Acts. It's a prequel and a sequel. He's a historian. Luke is about the life of Christ and Acts is about the life of Christ's people. It says that he, Pharaoh, this is way back in the Old Testament. He was a godless king who ruled over the nation of Egypt. It says he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. It's the same word because the baby in the womb is the same as the baby in the manger, is the same as the little kids that are running to Jesus, is the same as the children who were put to death in a slaughter under the rule of Pharaoh. And if you keep reading in Luke, there's another godless man named Herod who comes along and murders a whole bunch more children. Baby in the mother's womb made in the image and likeness of God, known by God, loved by God, potentially even saved by God. We learn that John the baptizer was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and here he leaps in the presence of Jesus as the old and new covenant come together. Baby Jesus laid in the manger, same word. Little children walking toward Jesus, same word. Little children running toward Jesus, same word. A whole generation put to death, by a maniacal, godless, demonic king. Children, same word. God doesn't see a difference. Here at the Trinity Church, I love you, we don't see a difference. We don't see a difference. Now this will raise some questions. The first is, what do I do if I've participated in the taking of a life? There is forgiveness for you in Jesus Christ. This baby comes to forgive sin. 
And this baby grows up to be the sinless man, the Lord Jesus Christ. God enters into his creation to save those who have rebelled against him. And while Jesus is hanging on the cross, and let me say that the taking of an unborn life is the taking of an innocent life, but the most innocent life that's ever been taken is the life of the Lord Jesus. Perfect and without sin. There he is being murdered and crucified. And he looks at those who have participated in the taking of his life. And he says, Father, what? Forgive them. If Jesus can forgive them for taking his innocent life, Jesus can forgive you for taking an innocent life. There is hope, there is help, there is healing in Jesus Christ. He died that you might live. He died and conquered death so that you might die and conquer death and be with him in life forever. The second question that sometimes comes, just listen to that. No, no, it's prophetic. That's a beautiful sound. I love having kids in the service. Somebody say they make noise. It just reminds us that there's life in the room. Amen? We celebrate life, we cherish life, we honor life. Some of you that will then ask, and let me revisit this point. Some of you live under great condemnation and guilt and shame. Some of you women have taken a life, some of you men have participated in the taking of a life. I want to alleviate that burden from you. I want to take that condemnation off you. I want to cleanse that shame from you through the power of the gospel and the strength of the Spirit. I don't want you to live condemned. I don't want you to live shamed. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you're forgiven. God loves you. We love you. You're not a second-class citizen in this church or in the kingdom of God. But you need to confess that sin to Jesus. You need to receive forgiveness from Jesus. You need that condemnation and shame lifted. My goal today is not to add shame to you, but to bring the truth to you and then lift the shame from you. Because here's the deal. Not only do we love unborn life, we love your life. We even love the life of those who have taken life. The second question that often gets asked is, what happens to the baby? Um, Sometimes this is through abortion. Sometimes this is through a miscarriage. How many of you have suffered a miscarriage? I was praying with a couple between services. They've had seven miscarriages or visiting with them. Grace and I had a miscarriage. We've got the Fab Five. We should have our Super Six, but we're missing somebody. They say that one in four or one in five pregnancies ends in a miscarriage, but oftentimes women don't even know because it happened so early that they're unaware that they were even pregnant. It's common, sadly, tragically. What happens to a baby? Well, here's the good news. God decides. God decides. It says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb. It says of certain prophets in the Old Testament that they were set apart from their mother's womb. We've already learned about John the baptizer that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, born again. That we're going to see here that he leaps in the presence of Jesus. He worships from his mother's womb. God knows the unborn child. God has the ability to choose for salvation the unborn child. What I want to give you is hope. Oftentimes, with this very 
personal, painful, pastoral question, people say, give me an answer. Here's what I want to give you, the character of God. That God is a father, that God knows and loves children, that God can save from the womb. Therefore, I want you to have hope for your unborn child. I want you to have hope. For our unborn child that we lost through miscarriage, I have every hope of seeing that child and celebrating with that child and seeing that child reunited in the family. And I trust God for the life of that child. And I trust God for the eternal life of that child. And I believe that the God who was faithful to me and to my wife and to our five children, that I will trust him to make the decision and I'm glad he's the one who gets to make it. So I want to give you hope. The third question that often comes up is some of you would say, Pastor Mark, I disagree with you. What do you think about that? I would say you are wrong. Can I just be clear? You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Because you don't need to agree with me. You need to agree with God. And I understand where you're coming from. Let me share a little bit of my story. So I was raised an Irish Catholic. We were the O'Driscolls. Catholics are historically pro-life, not me. When I hit high school and college years, I was a bit of a hack philosopher, and I liked to study, and I ended up doing some debates, and I ended up coming to a position that is called Malthusian eugenics. Uh, Thomas Robert Malthus, if my memory serves me correct, is kind of the architect of this thinking, And the way it works is that it works itself out politically in this way. It it, it sort of interfaces itself with evolutionary Darwinism. That some of us are more evolved than others. Some of us are less evolved. Some of us are more human and some of us are less human. Those of us who are more evolved and more human, we should live. Those who are less evolved and less human, they should die because they're taking the resources that are holding the rest of us back from evolving more and achieving our potential. This was the position that I held. I debated it in high school quite successfully. I went to college, and I remember actually being in a large classroom, hundreds of students, and they put me up against some, I think it was an evangelical Christian kid. I was not a Christian at the time. And I put this kid through a wood chipper, humiliated, destroyed them in a public debate on abortion. And I'm arguing not just that people have the right to choose, I'm arguing that the state should mandate population controls and that less fit people should not be able to reproduce. So much so that my African Marxist professor came up to me and said they wanted to mentor me as a student representative to debate this issue on campus because I was good at it. At the same time, I was dating Grace, pastor's daughter from an evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian home. She is devoutly pro-life, and she's arguing with me. Now, let me tell you this. She was right, and I won. I'm I'm a terrible person to argue with. My, my mom said I was like raising a small attorney. That's what she said it was like raising me. I can think on my feet. I verbal process. Half the sermon's made up while I'm standing here, and I just kind of think out loud. So I would argue with Grace, and she would get very frustrated because she was right and I was wrong 
but I would win the argument. So thank you, honey, for arguing with me. Uh, Grace was right, I was wrong. And then I go off to college, and I am a Malthusian eugenist, and I actually... I actually believed in some of the same philosophies as Margaret Sanger. She's one of the founders of Planned Parenthood. If you look at the history of Planned Parenthood, they also believe that less fit races and classes of people should die so they would open their clinics in poorer neighborhoods to terminate the less fit. It's incredibly Darwinian and racist. The Bible says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. That happened for me in college. I'll never forget. I became a Christian. God saved me through the reading of his word. And I started reading the Bible, the Bible that Grace gave me. She finally is like, I can't beat this guy, so I'm going <laughs> to give him a Bible. And boy, I tell you, the, the Bible, I lost. I'll just say that. Uh, and I started reading, and it, it, it taught me very clearly that we're all made in the image and likeness of God, that we all bear equal dignity, value, and worth. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female, young or old, black or white, healthy or sick, it doesn't matter. That God, that God gives equal value, worth, and dignity to each person who is his image bearer. Furthermore, we don't come from animals, we come from God. We're not just lucky evolved beings with thumbs. We're we're image bearers of God. And I started reading the Bible and my mind began to change. And all of a sudden I realized the way I view myself, the way I view life, the way I view the unborn, the way I view everything is quite frankly wrong. And it was a season of repentance and relearning for me. Now that I'm a father of five kids, I can't even imagine what I was thinking. Now that I get to be the pastor of your children, I can't even fathom what I was thinking. I intentionally put my office in the back of the church so I could overlook the kids' area because the happiest thing for me is to see your kids running around. That's what I like to do on Sundays. I stand up there and I pray over the kids and I watch them play and I'm as happy as I could be. And I remember when we first got this building, I remember praying, God, fill it up with kids. Fill up this room with kids. Fill up, fill up this house of God with the children of God. Children are a blessing. I used to tell all my kids, I'd get down and be like, my kids used to joke, I'd say, how's my blessing? I'm doing good, Dad. (laughs) So if you're here and you would say, Pastor Mark, I disagree with you, I would say you're wrong and you disagree with God. And what I would say is, if you're thinking, then this is not the church for me, I'm going to leave. Let me make an offer to you. If I am your pastor, meet with me before you go. Let me sit down with you. Let me talk with you. Let me pray with you. Feel free to bring all of your arguments because I already know them. (laughs) Okay? And let me walk with you. Let me talk with you. Let me pray with you. What we want to be is a place that honors life, including your life, including the lives of people who are wrong, to love them enough to bring them into alignment with God's will and God's word. And we want to be a place that doesn't reflect the culture back to itself, but reflects the kingdom out to the culture because ours is a living God. And one day this culture will be gone and the kingdom will come and things won't be like this. They'll be like God intended forever. And so we love you. I love you.
if you've already sinned, you're forgiven, but I want that burden off of you. And if you're wrong, I want to help you understand God's way, God's word, God's will. And I will personally extend a hand of invitation to anyone who calls me their pastor. What I'm not going to do is just tell you you're wrong and figure it out. I'm going to tell you you're wrong and I want to help you straight it out because I love you. So we value your life as well. Okay. But that being said, this sets a precedence here at the Trinity Church. It sets a pattern here at the Trinity Church. And it's one that we derive from the scriptures. And as I teach through books of the Bible, certain things will emerge and we'll just deal with them as they arise. Amen? Do you hear my heart on this? God's a father. right? We want to have the father's heart for life. That being said, the story continues. God's family is life-giving. Uh, Luke 1, 41 and 42. And Elizabeth was filled with a Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity that empowers the life of Jesus is working mightily in the life of Elizabeth. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So Mary makes this hundred mile journey, pregnant to get with Elizabeth, who's pregnant. She's farther along. She's showing at this point. And what happens when she comes in the presence of Elizabeth is that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've always understood this to mean that that God lived in her, that God lived through her, that the power she lived by was a supernatural power. It was the power of God. But in studying and praying recently, God revealed something to me. When To be spirit-filled also means that the Holy Spirit has done some healing in your soul, in your heart. She told us a little bit earlier that God had lifted her reproach or her shame. She had the reputation in town. Well, children are a blessing and women who have children are blessed. And Elizabeth doesn't have a child. Therefore, she must not be blessed. So she lived under this condemnation. She lived under this reproach. She lived under this shame. She was the kind of woman who loved the Lord, but but she was sorrowful in her heart because she never got to be a mother. And what God has done is God has healed that in her. God has brought her to a place of joy. She's not bitter, she's blessed. She's not cursing God, she's praising God. She's no longer hurting, she's healed. At the soul level, at the heart level. So that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to heal our hurts so that we can move forward with our life. Some of you, it's the struggle you have right now is you're hurt. Something has been very painful for you as it was very painful for her or very shameful for you as it was very shameful for her. The Holy Spirit needs to heal that. He needs to heal that hurt in your heart. And then the next thing that he does is he brings emotional health. It says elsewhere in the Bible that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What the Bible is teaching there is that as we understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not only does he heal us, he causes us to be emotionally healthy. If you're struggling, you say, man, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, there are areas in my life where that is not my ongoing experience. The answer is you need to become emotionally healthy. The way to do that is by being filled with the Holy Spirit to spend time in God's presence, to spend time in God's word, to talk to God in prayer, to be worshiping God privately so that there can be healing and health in you. 
Now, what happens when you're healed and healthy by the Holy Spirit? You become a life-giving person who blesses others. That's why she makes the 100-mile walk. You know that somebody is spirit-filled when you're willing to walk 100 miles just to see them. Because there are few people and places that are filled with the Spirit and life-giving. And so she makes this journey to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is healed from her hurts. She's emotionally healthy by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she pronounces a blessing on Mary and Jesus. Blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. My prayer for us in general, but those of us who are older in particular, is to be filled with the Spirit, healed up, emotionally healthy, so that we can bless other generations. Those of you who are older, you're in this incredibly important season of your life where you could be a life-giving source of blessing to others. What was it like for Mary? Again, we know nothing about her parents. Joseph hasn't made his decision. Her reputation is absolutely a question mark. She makes her way to Elizabeth. And I see Elizabeth putting a hand on Mary and a hand on her belly and say, you're blessed. He's blessed. We're all blessed. It's a blessing. And you know what? A lot of other people would have called it a cursing, but she calls it right. She calls it a blessing. And she pronounces life over Mary. The reason why people travel great distances is to be in God's presence, to be with God's people, to experience God's peace. May we be people by the power of the Holy Spirit who are healed, healthy, and a life-giving blessing. May people want to drive 100 miles, walk 100 miles to be here so that they can receive life-giving blessing. There is nowhere else on the world you can go for this. You can go shopping here. You can have dinner there. You can watch a movie here. You can entertain yourself there. But where do you go to get a blessing? Where do you go to get a healing? Where do you go to get encouragement? Where do you go to get life? That's God's house. And because God dwells in the house of Elizabeth and Zechariah, she, Mary, gets to be in the presence of God with the people of God, and then she receives the, the, the praise of God. And we want this to be that same kind of house. One of the things that God has really laid on my heart to focus on for next year is to increasingly be filled with the Holy Spirit as a life-giving source of blessing to this spiritual family. And I hope and I pray when you come here, you would experience God's presence, God's peace, God's pleasure, that you would receive life from God's word, and that you would leave here feeling like you met with God, like Mary felt when she left the presence of Elizabeth. And then the story concludes, in God's family, Jesus is Lord. So then Elizabeth, this wonderful godly woman, she says, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my, what? Lord. Okay, what's... What's the Lord doing right now? Well, the Lord is a baby in the mother's womb. Very early in the pregnancy, I might add. Very early. Elizabeth is probably six months along. Mary's just newly pregnant. And Elizabeth, with this great insight, says, there's my Lord. I mean, you think it's hard to worship Jesus? Imagine you're his aunt, right? I mean, she has to reorient her thinking. She has to say, okay, I'm the extended relative of Mary and there's the baby, but I know who that baby is. That baby is the creator entering his creation. This is the maker coming as the savior. This is the fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will have a baby 
And there, there they are, my Lord. Can, can you say that today? Can you say Jesus is my Lord? Can you say that? Can you say that? Can you say Jesus is my Lord? The question is not who is Lord in your life. The question is, is it Jesus or someone else who is Lord over your life? Ultimately, if it's not Jesus in authority, it's someone else. And if it's anyone other than Jesus, it is not life-giving. It is not eternity-altering. It is not soul-saving. She says rightly, this is my Lord. For behold, when the sound of... Let me say this too. Elizabeth then is the first person in the New Testament to call Jesus Lord. How awesome is that? Right, a poor pastor's wife from a rural area who's quite a bit older. She's the first one who makes the pronouncement. It goes on and it says, uh, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby, John the baptizer, in my womb, leap for joy. The first worshiper of Jesus is John the baptizer in utero, in womb. That's, that's awesome. That's unbelievable. So don't think, oh, my kids are too young to know the Lord. They're too young to sing to the Lord. They're too young to pray to the Lord. Look, you can start early. Amen. (laughs) You pregnant ladies lay hands on your belly, fill them with the spirit and let them dance. Right. But not when I'm sleeping. Okay. You could pray over your belly that God will save, that God will serve, that God will seek your baby. John the baptizer gets in the presence of Jesus. He leaps for joy. He worships his cousin. And blessed is she who believed. You want to be blessed? Anybody here want to be blessed? I was was thinking maybe more of you would be. Okay, but that's fine. I'll take what I can get. Blessed is she who believed. The key is you want to be blessed, you need to believe. You need to believe what God says. You need to believe what God says. You need to believe ultimately what God says. She's blessed because she believed. Those who believe are those who are in the place that God blesses. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, in closing, let me say this. Here's the entrance of Jesus into history. It's the beginning of the inauguration and the unveiling of the kingdom of God through the entrance of the king. And all of this is countercultural. A single Young woman, an elderly, barren woman, poor people out in the hill country. Yes, this is how the kingdom of God comes. It comes humbly. It comes to those who love the Lord and are awaiting the coming of the Lord. It comes to those who worship the Lord. It comes to those who are longing for the Lord. Let me close with an application for us as a people. Elizabeth's place is a house and there is the family And that's the beginning of the kingdom. And that's how I see church. I see church as a family that is an outpost for a kingdom where Jesus is Lord over all of life and everything is under his rule and subject to his commands and decrees. And what we see here is the kingdom is starting to reveal itself in the culture. And in the kingdom, chastity is practiced before marriage. We see that from Mary. That fidelity is practiced in marriage. We see that with Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah. We see that children are a blessing. We see that life is cherished and honored. 
we see that younger people pursue older people for relationship and that older people are filled with the spirit and a source of life-giving emotional health and blessing to younger people. We see that even young children are invited and, and the great hope and longing is that they would know and love and serve the Lord from the youngest age possible. It is a kingdom value and ethic that we judge people not contingent upon their race or their age or their status, but their character. And Elizabeth and Mary both have great character and their husbands, Joseph and Zachariah, as you will see in the coming weeks, have great character as well. We also see that the value of the kingdom is marriage, that Elizabeth and Zachariah are married and that Joseph and Mary will be married And ultimately we see that the value of the kingdom is to be filled with the spirit, to be healed from our hurts, to become emotionally healthy so that the life of the kingdom flows out to bless others. It's my prayer that this church family would grow to be that kind of family. It is my deep, profound longing and request of God that I would be that kind of person for you as I have the honor of opening God's word. I love you with all my heart. I am overjoyed at what God is doing in our midst. I feel like we are seeing the beginning of the unveiling of the kingdom of God. And for those of you who are older, thank you. We love you. We need you. You are a great treasure and joy. For those who are younger, we would compel you to pursue character as Mary did. And let's all agree that when a baby is born or a foster child is brought into a home or an adoption happens, that we throw a party. Amen? Because ultimately, God is our Father and we're His kids. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to teach your word today to your people in your house. Lord, I pray against all of the lies that would come to us in the culture that we should live for the approval of others or we should live for the pleasure of ourselves rather than living for the glory of our Creator. Lord God, we thank you that though not perfect, we see great examples with Mary and Elizabeth We see that young and old can walk in integrity and and character. Lord God, thank you that you honor life in the womb and that, Lord Jesus, you, you humbled yourself to get off a throne and to come into a womb. That that the first throne that you sat on and ruled from from the earth was a, a feeding trough for an animal called a manger. Lord God, we confess that in the season of Christmas, as we see pictures of the manger with Jesus and Mary and Joseph as we, as we see the nativity scene on our Christmas cards, as we flip through the channels to see the, the holiday shows, that sometimes the majesty, the wonder, the magnificence of the coming of a king and a kingdom gets a bit overlooked by us. Please let us stop in this season of celebration to remember the birth of the most important person in the history of the world, our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the health and the life that we are enjoying. I pray that this would be like Elizabeth's house, a kingdom place where the presence and peace of God was felt, where people came from near and far so that they could receive a blessing from a God who loves them. And God, I thank you for the babies in the womb. I thank you for the children in the kids' ministry. I thank you for those that have gone before us and are in your presence and you determine their eternal fate. And Lord God, we thank you that we can give all these burdens and longings and hopes and fears and dreams to you. 
And Lord Jesus, as you came once, we look forward to your coming again. We look forward to the day when death is no more, when all kingdoms come to an end, and our king reigns forevermore in a kingdom of life. And Lord Jesus, help us to prepare for that place in your name. Amen.